Okay, we're now being recorded, and I'm not sure I can top that, but the surety presentation today concerns the surety's rights and obligations with respect to the Internal Revenue Service, or the IRS. There are really two major topics to discuss. The first topic concerns the possible claims that the IRS may have against the surety for the payment of the principal's ta withholding tax obligations. These surety obligations may arise in two circumstances. First, the IRS may have claims against the performance and or payment bonds that the principal and the surety executed for the obligees, whether those obligees are the federal government under the Miller Act, state and local governments under the various Little Miller Acts, private owners, obligees, or general contractors for their subcontractor principals. Second, the surety may require some form of funds control at some time arising from the execution of the bonds to receive and control the principal's use of the bond and contract funds. Or the surety may take actions under the performance bond, such as financing the principal. Either situation may saddle the surety with obligations to the IRS to pay the principal's withholding taxes. The second topic concerns those instances when the surety and the IRS make competing claims and assert their priorities to the bonded contract funds on one or more bonded projects. To the extent that the IRS may prevail, the surety suffers a loss when its ability to obtain the bonded contract funds to reduce its loss fails and those bonded contract funds end up instead in the hands of the IRS. Mike? Okay, uh, I'm going to start off by talking about, you know, claims that the IRS may have against the surety for the payment of taxes. After July 15, 1967, a surety is liable under the Miller Act for taxes imposed on wages related to the bonded project. It doesn't matter if the surety was financing the principal or exercising control over the principal's operations or whether the surety was controlling the funds, and George will talk about all those issues later. But Congress decided that under the Miller Act, the surety should be liable under the performance bond for these particular wage-related taxes. So the Miller Act now provides that every performance bond required under this section specifically shall provide coverage for taxes the government imposes, which are collected, deducted, or withheld from wages the contractor pays in carrying out the contract with respect to which the bond is furnished. The good news is that the liability for taxes under the Miller Act is limited to those relating to wages for labor on the bonded project, as opposed to all the other multitude of taxes that are out there. And while Congress placed the liability um, for such taxes squarely in the surety's lap, they also placed a notice requirement and a limitations period upon the IRS in order to seek recovery. So the Miller Act provides that the government shall give the surety written notice with respect to unpaid taxes within 90 days after the date when the contractor files a return, or if no return is filed, within 180 days from the date of when the return is required to be filed. And the Miller Act further provides that the government may not bring a civil action on the bond for the taxes unless the notice is timely given and such civil action is filed within one year of the date that the notice is given. It's been held that as long as the notice was timely, the government need only substantially comply with the notice requirements. The Fourth Circuit stated that the purpose of the notice requirement is to alert the surety of the principal's default on payment of its withholding taxes, and that payment of the debt is expected uh, from the surety. The Miller Act does not require the government to detail with specificity the contracts, bonds, and amount of delinquent taxes the fact that a timely notice may contain certain factual errors and imperfections 
does not relieve a surety from its legal obligation to perform. Of course, the express liability under the Miller Act for wage taxes is limited to the Miller Act surety. The Act does not apply to the lower tier bonds uh, or on um, non-Miller Act projects. Historically, the IRS has attempted to assert claims against payment bonds and performance bonds for wage withholding taxes on non-Miller Act projects, including state and local projects. In, United, in USF&G versus the U.S., the IRS asserted that under the payment bond, the surety assumed responsibility for the principal's obligation to pay for labor and material, which the IRS contended included the obligation to pay payroll taxes. The Tenth Circuit held that the obligation of the principal to pay payroll taxes arose from statute, and the subcontract provision requiring payment of such taxes was merely declaratory of the existing liability under the federal tax law. Thus, the court concluded that the failure to pay taxes was not a breach of contract. Equally important, the court also held that the duty to pay payroll taxes was not within the principal's obligation to pay for labor and was therefore not covered by the payment bond. The Fourth Circuit observed that the statutes and regulations, it seems clear that when an employer holds the tax or withholds the tax from an employee's wage and pays the balance to the employee, the employee, the laborer, has been paid in full. The full wage has been received. The employer has discharged its contractual obligation to pay the full wage. Therefore, the only liability that remains is to pay the tax. That's a tax liability for which the employer alone is liable to the government. Therefore, the bond doesn't cover that obligation. Um, That was the Fourth Circuit uh, reasoning in the case of United States versus Crossland Construction. There have been no recent cases in which the IRS has sought to recover payroll taxes under a payment bond. So while the IRS may have given up on the payment bond avenue of attack, it has not gone away. Rather, the IRS simply shifted the attack to the performance bond. The primary theory employed by the IRS is to assert that based on the language of the bonded contract requiring payment of taxes, the IRS is a third-party beneficiary under the performance bond. In U.S. versus Phoenix Indemnity Company, a Fourth Circuit case, the principal entered into a contract with the housing authority of the city of Fayetteville, North Carolina, for the construction of low-cost housing. The bonded contract provided that the principal was required to pay, um, to provide and pay for all materials, labor, and taxes. The principal defaulted, and the co-sureties agreed to complete the work. Subsequently, the IRS determined that the principal had failed to pay certain taxes, including payroll withholding taxes. The trial court held that the sureties had no liability under the bonds for the taxes. However, the Fourth Circuit reversed and ruled that because the contract language, because of the contract language, the principal, as part of its performance of the contract, was required to withhold and pay payroll taxes. And because the contract was incorporated into the bond, it was the surety's obligation under the performance bond to satisfy the principal's obligation to pay taxes. Now, with very little analysis other than to make the statement, the court held that the performance bond was made for the government's protection, and it is entitled to sue thereon as a third-party beneficiary. The Fifth Circuit in U.S. versus Maryland Casualty Company rejected the Fourth Circuit ruling in Phoenix, and, um, uh, and in this case, the IRS sued the surety for recovery of payroll withholding taxes under the performance bond. Um, it was stipulated that the principal, in fact, owed the taxes. The trial court dismissed the IRS suit, and the IRS appealed, and the Fifth Circuit affirmed the dismissal. The bonded subcontract provided that the principal was to, you know, to keep the records and pay all the taxes. However, the court, looking at Supreme Court references or cases, rather, held that 
tax liability is based squarely on statutes and any contractual language regarding payment of taxes was merely declaratory of an existing statutory obligation. Thus, the failure to pay the taxes is not a breach of contract, but rather a breach of statutory obligation. Therefore, there's no liability under the performance bond. The IRS asserted in this case that it was a third-party beneficiary of the bond, but the Maryland Casualty Court noted that the IRS had the burden of establishing that it was an intended beneficiary and it had failed to meet that burden. The court noted there was nothing in the face of the bond to indicate any intention to make the IRS an intended beneficiary. Courts in other jurisdictions have gone in both directions on the issue of the surety's exposure under performance bonds to payroll withholding taxes. The most recent case is Island Insurance Company versus Hawaiian Foliage, Foliage and Landscaping, Inc. out of the Ninth Circuit in 2002. In that case, um, the court found the surety liable for such taxes under its performance bond. The surety bonded a landscaping subcontractor on a golf course project for the city and county of Honolulu. The principal defaulted and failed to pay various state and federal taxes. The surety filed a declaratory judgment uh, action seeking a declaration that it was not liable for the taxes. The trial court granted a summary judgment in favor of the surety. The Ninth Circuit reversed. The subcontract clearly required the subcontractor to pay all applicable taxes, including the payroll withholding taxes. The bond clearly covered performance of the subcontract. Thus, the court concluded that reading the subcontract and the bond together, the IRS was a third-party beneficiary of the bond. There's a dissenting opinion in, in that Hawaiian case that basically gets the issue right and would have found no liability under the bond. So the takeaway here is that the surety may have exposure under its performance bond to the IRS for withholding taxes if the language of the bonded contract and the bond together evidence an intent by the parties to benefit the IRS and you're in one of those jurisdictions that accepts that approach, uh, or if you have a Miller Act performance bond, in which case the Miller Act clearly requires that uh, liability. Okay, George. The IRS also may have claims against the surety when the surety gets control over the bonded contract funds. When the surety initiates some form of funds control, whether it's joint control of the principal or some other surety controls over the principal's use of the bonded contract funds, including under a financing agreement in the event of the principal's performance default under the bonded contracts, the surety may be directly liable for the principal's withholding taxes as a result of the surety's paying of the wages of the principal's laborers on the bonded contracts. In either, of the funds, in either case of funds control, with or without surety financing, the surety may take control over the principal's receipt and determine the principal's use of the bonded contract funds in order to reduce the surety's potential or ultimate loss. The Internal Revenue Code creates potential tax liability for such a surety under three sections and three theories. First, the surety may be liable for the withholding taxes as the employer when it exercises exclusive control over the principal's employees and, more importantly, when the surety exercises control over the payment of the wages to those employees. Two bad things may happen if the surety is found to be an employer. First, the surety may be liable for both the employee's share of the amounts of withholding taxes that were required to be deducted and paid to the IRS and the employer's share of those taxes. And second, as an employer, the surety may be liable for penalties for the employer's failure to file quarterly tax returns and failure to, to deposit the withholding taxes with the IRS. 
A second theory is that the surety's control over the bonded contract funds may make the surety a responsible person for the payment of a penalty equal to the amount of the taxes that were to be withheld by the principal. And the surety's willful failure to pay the withheld taxes as a responsible person may subject the surety to liability beyond the amounts, the amounts withheld for the principal's labors on the bonded contracts. There are two conditions. First, the responsible person must have been required to collect, truthfully account for, and pay over any payroll taxes, namely the person individually or jointly who has the final word as to what bills should or should not be paid and when. Second, the responsible person must have willfully failed to perform those required functions of collecting, accounting for, and paying over the withholding taxes to the IRS. Willful is not a wrongful act. Willful means, in general, a voluntary, conscious, and intentional act. A surety's decision not to pay withholding taxes to the IRS from the controlled funds and to pay instead other creditors to reduce the surety's loss is taking a willful action as a matter of law. The reality is that the surety exercising funds control over the bonded contract funds to reduce its bond losses, whether it is financing the principal or not, is a responsible person. Furthermore, under the loose definition of willful, the surety preferring to pay other creditors and not paying the withholding taxes to the IRS will face tax liability to the IRS for those withholding taxes. The third section, which is section 3505, specifically mentions the lending surety. The financing surety may be liable for withholding taxes if it is a net payroll lender. The surety is liable to the IRS for 100% of the withholding taxes plus interest when the surety directly pays the wages of its principal's laborers, whether as funded from a joint controlled account or a controlled account or the payment of a payment bond claim. That's section 3505A. However, when the surety indirectly funds advances or provides financing for the payment of those wages, to the principal with actual notice or knowledge that the principal will not withhold and pay over the necessary payroll taxes, the surety is liable to the IRS for taxes and interest totaling up to 25% of the advances made for payroll. That's Section 3505B. Section 305 liability may be unavoidable by the financing surety. Section 3505B liability, the 25% of advances made, may be cheaper for the surety than Section 3505A liability, depending on the amount of surety financing for the principal's wages. In order to protect the surety from tax liabilities of Section 3505 and litigation with the IRS, the normal financing agreement between the surety and the principal contains a specific provision for the payment by the surety and the principal of all withholding and payroll taxes. Furthermore, the time that tax payments are paid by the surety and the principal, the surety must file Form 4219 with the IRS. In summary, the takeaway from this part of the presentation is that when the surety takes some kind of control over the principal's receipt and use of the bonded contract funds, whether the surety is financing the principal or not, the surety must withhold and pay the payroll taxes to the IRS 
and report those amounts as required by the IRS. Mike? Okay, now I'm going to talk a little bit about priority issues uh, between the surety and the IRS. Inevitably, the day will come when the surety, having paid payment bond claims or paid to complete the work or both, seeks payment of the remaining contract funds, and the IRS seeks recovery of unpaid taxes against those same funds. Who wins? Who has priority? Whose rights are better? That's the focus of this section. We all know that the surety has its subrogation rights, which allow it to stand in the shoes of the principal, the subcontractors, suppliers, laborers of the principal, and the obligee, as well as others, such that surety can assert the rights that those parties have. The surety subrogation rights arise as of the date that the principal is declared in default or is in default in fact and relate back to the date of issuance of the bonds for the project. The Internal Revenue Code grants numerous rights to the IRS for the collection of delinquent taxes. Chief among those rights are the tax lien and the tax levy. The Internal Revenue Code at 26 U.S.C. 6321 gives the IRS the ability to place a lien upon all property or property rights of a delinquent taxpayer up to the amount of the delinquency. The tax lien applies to all real and personal property of the taxpayer. While a tax lien is deemed to arise at the time that an assessment is made, for a lien to be valid against other lien holders, it must be recorded with the proper authority in each state where the property is located. Section 6323F of the tax code details the procedures that the IRS must follow in providing its notice of lien. If the tax lien is properly recorded, it will attach to existing property and property that is acquired by the taxpayer after the date of the recording. The IRS right of levy allows it to assert actual or constructive possession over the taxpayer's property. 26 U.S.C. 6332 sets forth the levy rights of the IRS. A notice of levy is a demand to a third party that the third party turn over to the IRS all property held by the third party in which the delinquent taxpayer has rights. The tax code provides for personal liability and penalties for any person that fails to turn over property levied by the IRS. So, as I mentioned, the IRS lien or levy can only attach to property rights of the taxpayer. Thus, the first issue to review in a priority dispute with the IRS is whether the delinquent taxpayer had valid property rights in the property on which the lien or levy uh, has attached. To determine if the taxpayer has property rights in the bonded contract funds, one must look to the status of the work, the terms and conditions of the bonded contract, whether the principal is, de is declared in default or whether it is in default in fact, applicable state law and other facts and circumstances surrounding the project. Typically, construction contracts will provide that a principal's failure to meet the schedule, failure to timely pay subs and suppliers, performance of defective work, etc., will constitute a material default, and the obligee is then entitled to withhold the bonded contract funds to remedy the default. Many courts have held that a principal's default of its bonded contract obligations divests the principal of its property interest in the bonded contract funds. Under these cases, the obligee's right to the bonded contract funds upon the principal's default supersedes any right on the part of the principal to payment for work completed until such time as the principal's scope of work has been completed and all subs and suppliers have been paid. If the principal's property rights and the bonded contract funds are gone, there's no property interest upon which an IRS tax lien can attach and any attempt to lien would have no effect. The concept is simple enough, but applying the concept in practice can be difficult because of the variations of contract terms, state law, and other variables. 
The Fifth Circuit in Capital Indemnity Corp. versus U.S. dealt with a typical circumstance where the bonded contract required the principal to timely pay its subs and suppliers and entitled the obligated withhold payment to the principal if it was in breach of its payment obligations. The IRS filed a tax lien sometime later. The obligee, although approving the principal's application for payment, did not release the bonded contract funds because it had determined that the principal was not timely paying its subs and suppliers. The IRS issued a notice of levy to the obligee demanding that any of the principal's property held by the obligee be turned over to the IRS. The obligee terminated the principal, the surety completed the bonded project, and paid the, the subs and suppliers. The surety then filed a wrongful levy action. The Fifth Circuit found that the IRS had failed to establish that the principal was entitled under the bonded contract to further bonded contract funds because of its failure to pay its subs and suppliers and the applicable bonded contract language. The court concluded that there was no nexus between the taxpayer and the property levied upon, and therefore the IRS had no interest in the bonded contract funds. A different result was reached in the Seventh Circuit. In that case, the principal fell behind on the work and its subcontractors and suppliers were not being timely paid. However, the obligee and its architect had committed to having the principal finish the bonded project and frequently modified the scope and terms of the contract to keep the bonded contract funds flowing to the principal. The IRS recorded liens on the principal's property in regard to delinquent tax obligations unrelated to the bonded project. Thereafter, the IRS served the obligee with a levy demanding immediate possession of all the principal's property. The obligee decided to make no further payments to the principal following receipt of the levy. However, the architect approved the principal's application for payment after the levy was served. The surety filed a, long, a wrongful levy action asserting that the principal was in default in fact prior to the recording of the IRS lien and that the principal had no property interest in the bonded contract funds. The court ruled that the obligee had waived its rights to retain the bonded contract funds by accepting the principal's performance and permitting the principal's default under the bonded contract. The court also ruled that under the bonded contract terms, the architect's approval of the application for payment created a property right to the bonded contract funds in favor of the principal. Accordingly, the court held that because the principal had a property interest in the bonded contract funds, the IRS was entitled to the funds. In a, in a Sixth Circuit decision, in Ray Construction Alternatives, the IRS filed tax liens against the principal for delinquent tax obligations related to other projects, and the principal later filed bankruptcy. At the time of the bankruptcy, the work on the bonded project was complete, but the principal had failed to pay some of its subcontractors and suppliers. The surety paid those claims under its payment bond. The bankruptcy court ruled that the IRS had priority over the surety to the bonded contract funds, and the surety appealed. The Sixth Circuit held that the bonded contract did not provide for retainage and did not allow the obligee to withhold the bonded contract funds from the principal because of its failure to pay its subcontractors and suppliers. Because the principal had completed all the work required of the bonded contract, the court held that the principal retained a property interest in the bonded contract funds, which was subject to the IRS lien. As these cases demonstrate, the analysis of whether the delinquent taxpayer has a property interest in the bonded contract funds can be complicated and depends on consideration of a variety of factors. Okay, so now let's talk about the, um, the resolution of priority disputes between the surety and the IRS. Prior to 1966, the priorities of other types of liens versus federal tax liens were determined solely under the first-in-time is first-in-right rule interpreted together with the Cohate Doctrine. After 1966, Congress changed the priority analysis when it enacted 26 U.S.C. 6323C of the Internal Revenue Code, 
which addresses the priority of certain liens and interests relative to a tax lien. Section 6323C states relevant part that the tax lien shall not be valid with respect to a security interest that arose after the tax lien if the security interest is a qualified is in qualified property covered by the terms of a written agreement entered into before the tax lien filing and constituting an obligatory disbursement agreement and is protected under local law against the judgment lien arising as of the time of the tax lien filing out of an unsecured obligation. So you got to unpack this statute a little bit and look at some of the, um, the definitions. The first term is obligatory disbursement agreement. Uh, that's defined as an agreement to make disbursements that are required to be made by reason of the rights of a person under, other than the taxpayer. This definition includes agreements such as the performance and payment bonds. The statute uh, specifically addresses sureties and provides that uh, where an, an obligatory disbursement agreement is an agreement in ensuring the performance of a contract between the taxpayer and another person, the term qualified property shall be treated as also including the proceeds of the contract, the performance of which was insured, and if the contract, the performance of which was insured was a contract to construct and prove real property, produce goods, or furnish services, the term qualified property shall be treated as also including any tangible personal property of the taxpayer. The term security interest is also defined as any interest in property acquired by contract for the purpose of securing payment or performance of an obligation or indemnifying against loss or liability. So based on the text and legislative history of 6323C, it's evident that Congress intended to allow for circumstances under which a surety's subrogation rights to the bonded contract funds could relate back to the date of issuance of its bonds and have priority over tax liens filed post-bond but pre-surety losses. With the priority issue determined based on whether the surety's subrogation rights to the bonded contract funds would take priority under the applicable state law over a hypothetical judgment lien that would deem, be deemed filed as of the filing of the tax lien. So there, there's conflicting cases on the, on the issue of whether uh, subrogation rights are a security interest acquired by contract as required under the code. And there are some cases that, that hold that, you know, subrogation rights arise as a matter of law and don't arise out of contract. And there are cases that, that go the other way on that. Um, of course, if the surety files its indemnity agreement as a UCC1 financing statement, then that issue goes away. And there are also issues under state law regarding the doctrine of relation back and whether it applies. There are some states in which it doesn't apply. There are some states in which it applies, but it, it only applies to retainage versus progress payments. Um, there are states that go both ways on that issue. There's also a question under, under, this, uh, under the tax code whether uh, if the surety is claiming through payment bond claims that it has paid, whether those payment bond claimants had to have their rights secured through mechanics liens or, or whatever uh, other state law rights they may have had. So uh, there's a number of issues that have to be looked at when you're, when you're dealing with the priority issues under 6323 of the code. George? As Mike just discussed, the timing of the recordation of the IRS tax lien determines the relative priorities of the IRS and other secured creditors to the bonded contract funds. In contrast, an IRS tax levy against a third party brings the property into IRS custody but does not determine the IRS's priority rights to the bonded contract funds. 
The IRS may not defeat the surety's rights, prior rights to the bonded contract funds by merely filing a tax levy on the obligee holding the bonded contract funds without recording at some point a tax lien that provides the IRS with a starting date for its claim priority rights to the bonded contract funds. However, once the IRS files the tax levy against the obligee that is holding the bonded contract funds, the surety must take steps to protect its priority rights to those funds, whether as a secured creditor or pursuant to its subrogation rights. The Internal Revenue Code provides that if the IRS serves a tax levy on a third party's property in order to collect taxes owed by another, the third party may bring a wrongful levy action against the United States to establish its rights to the levied property. A third party, a third party wrongful levy action must be initiated within nine months from the date of the service of the notice of levy on the party holding the alleged property of the taxpayer. Now, Mike addressed the impact of the surety subrogation rights of the bonded contract funds when the IRS serves a tax levy on the obligee holding those bonded contract funds in our March 13, 2017 Surety Today presentation. Regardless of what priority rights the surety may assert in the bonded contract funds and how those rights were created, whether it's a security interest or subrogation rights, that would otherwise defeat the IRS's priority rights under its tax lien if the surety does not file a wrongful levy action within nine months from the day of the service of the notice of the tax levy, then the surety may lose its priority rights. The Supreme Court has ruled that a wrongful levy action is the exclusive remedy for a third party, such as a surety, to assert its rights to property levied on by the IRS to satisfy the delinquent tax obligations of another party, such as the principal. While the tax levy is normally served on the obligee holding the bonded contract funds, it could also be served on a third party funds control company being used by the surety for the principal, or it could be served even on the surety itself, which has been paid the bonded contract funds and is holding excess bonded contract funds in reserve for future payments to reduce the surety's bond losses. The procedural steps that the surety must take to file a wrongful levy action are set forth in School Board versus JV Construction Corp., a case that Mike discussed in more detail on March 13, 2017. In summary, the service of a tax levy does not affect the relative priorities of the IRS against the surety to the bonded contract funds. But if the IRS serves a tax levy, the surety must take action to assert its priority to the bonded contracts funds within nine months of service of the tax levy through a wrongful levy action or lose its priority status to the bonded contract funds as against the IRS. Mike? Okay. Well, we've gone over a little bit here. Uh, sorry about that, everybody. The, uh, the next surety today will be... Uh, on April 9th, um, 2018, of course, at 12.30 Eastern Time. And we're going to talk about the exercise of set-off rights, the bad and the good for the sureties. So that ought to be fun. The next uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims Association meeting is March 21. The next uh, Chicago Surety Claims Association meeting is April 5th. And the, so the Southern Surety Claims Conference will be April 18th through the 20th in Clearwater, Florida. That'll be, that'll be fun. Um, I'll see, hope to see everybody there. So let me unmute the lines.